It is the week after the week that Anthony Cumia was on the Sportscasters. You listen, what do you think? I thought it was good. I thought it maybe sounded like uh, I saw you tweeted him after the interview at some point and said something about doing 100 shitty podcasts, something to that effect, like how he does a bunch of, uh, or maybe not how he does a bunch of podcasts, but how he, maybe you have the assumption that podcasts are just like these in your basement things. And it sounded like almost like he maybe was a little guarded at first, but I think he really loosened up after a few minutes into it. And that's how our sports guests are, too, I would say, that aren't familiar with the program. They come on, I think they're kind of like, what the heck is this? And then they loosen up by the end of it. Yeah, I think we've had it happen with a bunch of different guests over the years. Not just necessarily guys from outside of the realm of sports, but I think especially them. Certainly Artie was like that. Beginning of the Artie podcast is very much him sort of going through the motions before he opened up a little bit towards the end. And uh, one of the Florentine ones was like that. It was probably the first one. So it certainly does happen, but I was pretty happy with it on the whole. I mean, I asked for 20 to 30 minutes. We did 42 minutes, uh, and it certainly didn't seem like he was rushing to end it by any means. Right, right. I probably could have went a little bit longer, but I felt like I had asked... Uh, what I wanted to ask for the most part, and um, I didn't want to, uh, didn't want him to end and think, oh, geez, it was that long, you know, that guy took advantage or anything like that. But they were great. I mean, they were really great about setting it up. Anthony retweeted it, uh, the show's account retweeted it, and the uh, show's PR account also retweeted it. Oh, sweet. So they were good about retweeting it. I was hoping we'd get a mention on the podcast. Uh, only because I only thought to do it because of hearing him talk about doing other shitty podcasts. Okay. You know, on the show. But I guess it just didn't come up. Uh, which was sort I'm of. I'm not familiar with the other podcasts he's done. I'm, I, I mean, I haven't. I'm not saying that in a way like I've seen the tweets and I know which ones he's done and I'm not familiar with them. I don't know which other ones he's done. Well, I know the. I know the big ones he's done. Oh, sure. But yeah. I don't know what the other ones are because I don't know what they are. I've just heard them mentioned. Okay. Like, oh, I was on this podcast, and I have no idea what that was. Gotcha. So I said, well, if he's on a podcast that I don't know exists, might as well try and get him on ours, and it worked out. But Sure. No, it was fun. What do you think about just kind of us being a little bit loose with the format the last uh, since Super Bowl, really? We said we were going to do it, but I, I don't think even I expected us to do it quite to the extent that we have maybe what do i think yeah i mean how do you I, think it's gone as I, someone I who's a host it. of the show i wonder show. how the i wonder what the feedback is from uh from listeners more than anything if, if i'm more comfortable uh talking about stuff like this than i am pretending to know about college basketball or baseball or something i mean I, obviously those things we have to touch on and 
I know you're familiar with and we get guests on that are experts in those areas. But as far as my input in a non-football or hockey sense, sometimes it just isn't a – it's not going to be there. So Yeah, well, I think as far as the feedback from listeners, the the feedback you're most likely to get is negative. And there hasn't been a lot of it. Okay. People don't necessarily reach out to say, hey, like that was show. good. Right. People love to reach out and say that was shitty, though. Okay. And there hasn't been a lot of that. Or there hasn't been a lot of, hey, I listened to this because I absolutely need to hear Lee Jenkins again. Okay, right. You know, and it's not that I don't want to have Lee on as many times as he would come on. I just, I think there's been times in the evolution of the podcast that we've gotten somewhat comfortable with a segment of people and haven't pushed to expand people making their first appearance. And since the new year, I've made a point to get as many people on for the first time as I can. Sure. Uh, from a business model standpoint, we talked about that in the past, uh, I might enjoy the podcasts that are more about us than some of the other podcasts, but I'm not sure that that works. Maybe it does with our regular listeners more. And when you don't have a business model, you don't have to worry right. about ruining it. Right. You know, now is the perfect time, certainly, to experiment. Sure, Absolutely. With all that said, it is Season 5, Episode 8 of the Sportscasters, March 4th, 2015. And the guests today are very much ones that people who listen to the show are familiar with. Uh, we mentioned it last week, and uh, since I mentioned it, I couldn't let everyone down. The Puck Daddy, Greg Wyshynski, will be in to talk about the NHL trade deadline. We'll do that interview after three things. And also, Jonah Carey, uh, whose book... Uh, on the Montreal Expos came out probably six or so months ago. It came out on paperback today, and he also has a 6,000 or so word column that is a really good way to uh, get yourself back into baseball and know what teams did since the World Series to now. It's just a simple power rankings. He calls it the 30, and when he does it during the season, he only talks about a few of the teams in the 30. Uh, this time he did every team. And uh, quick guess, Don, who do you think was one and who do you think was 30? Rankings? Uh, I will say the Nationals were one. Correct. And I don't know. Um, the Phillies were 30. Really? Yeah. The Phillies and the Braves are both in the bottom three, hmm. and the Nationals were at one. So it's not going to be that difficult. I think the, the best competition for the Nats in the NL East is the Mets, who are in the middle somewhere. Sure. So they should uh, certainly coast. But we'll talk about all that with Jonah. Uh, I want to talk about Red Army one more time in the book club because uh, Gabe and... Slava were on Opie and Jimmy today. I heard. So I wanted to mention that, and we'll close things out with one last thing. Uh, so let's get started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Now let's move on to other business. 
All right, yesterday was the NHL trade deadline, and we had talked a lot last week about how there was not going to be much left for the trade deadline, and there was a certain quantity to trades. It wasn't like there was only four or five. Sure. But in terms of quality of trades, uh, there was not much. Yeah, I realized yesterday I had a tough time. After the deadline went down, I was walking out of my day job to my car, and I was thinking to myself, if I wasn't a Buffalo Sabres fan that is kind of narrowly focused on getting the last pick, and yesterday assisted that. They traded out any assets they had and brought nobody back as far as guys that are probably going to even hit the ice. My thought was that was probably a really, really boring trade deadline. It was very boring. It was very terrible in terms of quality of picks. I want to ask you about the Sabres for a second because I'm confused. We've talked about this all year, about how it's been a very polarizing year here, how there's been a battle between fans and media a battle between media and media here yeah. all day on Twitter today. Yeah. There was all kinds of Buffalo media fights, whether it was Tim Graham and Matthew Collar from WGR who fought all day long on yeah, Twitter today. Uh, or I like both of them. The, the usual uh, Mike Harrington fighting with everyone, right. which happened all day on Twitter. Right. What did the Sabres do wrong yesterday? What did the Sabres do that any out-of-it team hasn't done for the last 15 years? Yeah, that's what's strange to me, too, and that seems... To finally, I haven't seen much. Uh, that's one of the things Mike Harrington was kind of claiming going on is that there was a national outcry against it, but I didn't see any of it until yesterday. And yesterday I saw some of it. But Bucky Gleason, one of those local uh, newspaper writers that is very hypercritical. Yes. Um, he is one of the guys that said he's <clears throat> he kind of backed down from what he said. I'm not going to say he changed his mind, but what he said was. What they did today was fine. It's the way they've handled the whole season. But it comes across a little bit uh, like that you're thinking it's about what they did today when all of a sudden, I mean, you're you're adamant about how tanky they were today. I don't want to hear it from Toronto either. Like, your team is terrible. Uh, You've done plenty of things this year to embrace being terrible. Uh, Don't – I don't want to say it comes across as jealousy because that's almost – the wrong word, but I feel like there's this resentment to like, oh, Buffalo is actually going to get this done, right? Like, why the the NHL media really wants Connor McDavid buried in Arizona for the next? Yeah, the odd thing twenty to me years is that. And Ari- by the way, Arizona is a team who traded one of their better players who had a whole nother year right. on their on his deal and is only twenty eight years old. Very much could be a part of whatever half of McEichel they might get going right. forward, but in Arizona, they're okay? They're getting praise, actually, for what they did. And the only difference what they, what they did and what the Sabres did is the Sabres did it over the course of two years. The Sabres had their deadline day like Arizona did when they got rid of – and it wasn't even one day, but when they got rid of Vanek, Miller, Pominville. Yeah, I would say it's years, not Steve just Ott. one year. Right. Yeah. So they maybe took an entire calendar year or a year and a half and just realized where they were at and didn't re-sign these players. I I have yet, and I don't read the paper, not because I actively avoid it. I just don't subscribe to the paper. I would like to hear, rather than criticism from Bucky and Mike, I want to know what their plan would have been. Like, how do you lose – I know Mark Pesic. Being in Rochester is the 
uh, it's the thing that stinks the most of tanking because he's a guy that is clearly too good for the AHL and ready. I mean, he would be a top three defenseman on the Sabres right now, probably four at worst. So that's the tankiest part of the whole thing. But they're not really going to call up their kids from juniors or anything like that to improve. So what are they? I'd be interested to hear objectively because I know Mike is super defensive and I get it because people attack him for being an idiot and who cares about morals and whatever. So I get him being defensive, but I would be interested to hear what his plan would have been because Jerry Sullivan over there, their part, their colleague has criticized this team and fans for years for making historic runs to eighth for being okay with mediocrity. Right. I was just going to mention that you've made a good point about that. And for the first time when they really consciously tear it all the way down to rebuild it. Yes. It's, Widely criticized as some immoral tank. Right. And if you want to talk about, I talked about this in one of my one last things a couple of weeks ago. If you want to talk about how it stinks that the league works this way, I'm on board with that. If you want to give the first overall pick to the team that finishes 17th, I'm fine with that. Then you'll have teams trying all the, the entire season to make the playoffs. And, uh, or if you want to give the best odds to the team that finishes 17th or just give equal odds to everyone if it misses the playoffs, I'm okay with any of that because then there would be no purpose to this. But the fact that the Sabres are not going to rely on luck and that they're hedging a little bit, uh, I'm okay with that. I don't feel any need to apologize for anything they've done. Uh, if you don't like it, my guess is you're bummed that it might actually work. The league should fix it. I mean, they should fix it. And they they have taken some steps. It, they right. wouldn't be able to do it this way if it were next year. And this is a rare case, too, where there's two players. If there wasn't two players and they tanked an entire year or two years at a 20% chance at one of these at one guy, I'd be pissed, too. I'd be right on board with them. But there is a 100% chance at one of two guys that... Had they like done the anything this year that they didn't do last year when they finished 30th? I've... Uh, no, if anything, the goaltending has been better this year. It's weird. Like, people worried all the time about not being – a team like Philadelphia has to look at the Sabres. And Philly's not very good this year either. But a team that has always been looking for a goalie has to look at the Sabres. And they can't find a bad goalie to play. <laughs> Every goalie they put in there is, has been really good. And really the only reason they've won any games. They've been terrible this year. Certainly a strange deadline in the sense that so much focus is on what the teams looking to finish last have done. Uh, in terms of teams trying to improve their status as a cup contender – uh, I don't know that very many teams really strengthen that. I thought the Blackhawks did a good job to add a little bit of scoring as they uh, hope that Pat Kane can recover as quickly as possible. Anaheim made a nice move picking up Wisniewski. His injury, Anaheim's move was very good. And they didn't give up much for him either. I don't even think they had to give up a first. So. I thought the Canadians made a couple of decent moves. Yeah. Uh, what else was talked about out there? Minnesota oddly wants... The Sabers, like the they've got now Vanek, Pominville. Uh, they ended up with Chris Stewart and yeah, Leopold ended up there, who didn't come directly from there, but obviously a former Saber. And there's a bunch of stuff going around about her daughter, like writing a letter, yeah, it's something cute. like that. Uh, so overall, uh, it's a weird trade do- deadline in the sense that so much of the focus is what the bottom three or four teams did to, I guess, improve their hideousness. Yeah, the biggest move was the Sabres trading with Winnipeg. I mean, that wasn't technically a deadline move. Oh, it, by far. It was essentially a deadline move, and that was the. it was a hockey move. It was a deadline move. It was a dump. It was an acquisition. It was That was the coolest move of the deadline that didn't happen at the deadline. Uh, Yager is in uh, 
Florida. Yeah, it's weird. Maybe he can get another run at a playoff. I'm, I'm pulling for him now. He's a guy I think we talked last week I never particularly liked in Pittsburgh. Uh, I always thought he kind of came across as a, a prima donna a little bit. But I think he's a pretty likable guy now. I liked, like I said, the Hawks adding teaming in and Vermont. I thought that was good. And uh, Wisniewski is maybe the best player. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Moved, and he ends up at a team that already you could argue was the best. On D? Or just in general? In general, you yeah, could argue the Ducks sure. are the best team in the league. Sure. So, All right, second thing today, uh, moving on from that. Uh, next week's podcast will certainly focus quite a bit on uh, the other league that Don likes in the <laughs> Don likes sports world, and that's the NFL. As yesterday, the deadline for uh, franchise tags and things like that passed as we get ready for what might be the best class of free agents in eons, if not ever. Uh, who was it? Uh, Bill Polian. Put out an article on ESPN.com grading uh, the players uh, that are available. And there are uh, one A-plus player in Sue. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six players that he grades A. And one, two, three, four, five, six more players he grades at A-. minus. So that is 13 players that would grade out in the A level for Bill Polian. And that is a lot. Yeah. And it's a good year for your team to be in a position where they have plenty of money to spend on free agents and seemingly an owner who is more than fine with going that route. And uh, on the opposite end of that, not very good for my team who uh, is uh, really in trouble in terms of salary cap. The problem with the Bills is you can make the argument that the best player – they can. They'd be interested in getting back. Might be the guy that they just let, or that they just did not franchise. Hughes. Is, yeah, Jerry Hughes. Uh, Why wouldn't they want to add one of these great wide receivers? Well, no, they could. They could. I don't know what that does though. I know you're not a fan of Robert Woods, but that pushes him down to third and Watkins the second. Uh, you don't know what it would do to the team if Randall Cobb was the slot receiver and Sammy Watkins was the outside receiver. I guess I'd have to see how the offensive coordinator, coordinator makes that work. Because last year, I don't think it would have done anything. You know what I mean? Like, I, I would have loved to see. I They don't. I'm, I'm very interested to see what they do with the offense this year. But, uh, no, I'd love to have a Randall Cobb or a. What about Julius Johnson Thomas? To some extent. Um, that wouldn't help the Bills? Again, they've never had a tight end as far as. Oh. I, since way back when. So I don't even know how they would use the tight end. It would have to well, be. Well, I guess the Bills' best. Thing to do is just stand pat, not add any talent. Uh, they can't add a good quarterback, so he's not available. So they might as well stick with the team that they have now and finish six and ten, seven and nine again next year. No, I'm not saying that, but uh, I'd worry Julius Thomas is a a bit of a result of having Peyton Manning, um, and I think he's going to come at a premium. I, I don't think he's going to be priced that way. So I, I don't know how much I want to pay for for that guy. I'd be interested in maybe, like, uh, there's a lot of tight ends, aren't there? Like Jordan Cameron, Jermaine Gresham. Like, those guys are interesting to me. Uh, yeah. Randall Cobb maybe is the most interesting to me of all those guys. I know Andre Johnson 
is basically demanded. You have to trade for him. Yeah. I don't see why anyone would want to add Andre Johnson and give something away if they have the money to add a guy that they could add for free. I think it's. I think he's in the wrong spot to be looking for a trade. Is there a possibility? Also, the Bills don't, don't have any running backs. Yeah, that's true. DeMarco Murray is really interesting, but I, so, I mean, he's going to probably ask for the moon, I would assume, right? They have plenty of money to give for yeah. the moon, right? How, yeah, he, how under the salary cap are the Bills? I think they said $27 million, something like that. That's, that's quite a bit. Yeah. So I guess if nobody's going to pay DeMarco – I mean, is he going to – is it like a quarterback? Do you think? There's just, a lot of running backs, by the way, which is going to hurt all of those guys. Yeah, maybe that'd be great. Maybe be the – do you want to be the first guy in then or the last guy in if you're the owner? Would Mark Ingram help the Bills? I would think he's better than no one because they're starting over at running back, right? Well, it's Fred Jackson, I think, is still there. But, but yeah. he's well into his 30s sure, right. and he's only going to play 12 games. Yeah, Mark Ingram would probably be better than no one. Yeah. Um, but I wonder, as a GM, do you want to be the first guy to get a running back then or the last guy? Like, who who panics more? At yeah, the I there? think you want someone else to set the market, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, because DeMarco Murray is an interesting guy, especially because you know they're going to have to pound the ball this year. I mean, that said, a, our offensive line is nowhere near as He's good potentially as a much better version of C.J. Spiller. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Right, I mean, he's a guy who can catch the ball, fantastic. Run between he's his got tackles breakaway speed, but he runs between the tackles yep. better. Yeah, I'd it's be a great in him. Uh, yeah, I, I'd be interested in any of those guys on offense. I guess. I guess I'm just offense is so foreign to me being a Bills fan. We haven't had a good offense since Drew Bledsoe. And so. if Hughes is going to go, would you like to see them add a guy now that's like tough. Justin Houston? Well, he just franchised. He's franchised, correct? Uh, but he's still he's technically got, a free agent. Yeah, he got right. franchised. Pierre Paul got franchised. So. You could still offer those guys. Sure. Right? Yeah, I'm not sure what they do there. If uh, You have to give up, I think, two first-rounders or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, so I think... My issue with the head is kind of the issue I had with, with Jairus Bird. If, if you're going to let Jairus Bird walk, I don't want to draft a safety then in the draft. Because why? If you, if you wanted to invest in a safety in that way, why not just keep Jairus Bird? So my thought is, if you're going to... You're going to have to put a guy in his spot. But I know they like uh, – there's a guy on the team whose name is escaping me. But I don't know if I want to spend the biggest money on a guy that's not as good as Jerry Hughes. Another really cool thing on ESPN is to have some of the top guys in some potential landing spots. Let me throw some of these by you. Uh, for Sue, Oakland, Cleveland, and Indianapolis. <laughs> With a guy like that, do they just – does Oakland's name just get tossed around because of the mean guy, you think? Like, Oakland's in almost everything because I think they have money to tons spend. Of money, yeah. yeah. You know, they're cool. And, and needs. They and might finally be a, a cool team to follow. I like, like where they're at. Yeah. They gotta, I think I argued with someone on Twitter about how I thought if I was a coach, if I didn't consider ownership, I would, I would rather have the Oakland job than the Atlanta job. And I even hedged that with the Atlanta owner is a nightmare to coach for as well. He's constantly staring at you on the sideline. Yeah, yeah, that I'm. I might agree with that. Depending on, I know you said you're throwing out the owner. I guess it depends on how critical the owner did. Did the coach make it through Oakland's last season? I I, I don't remember if they made it. Yeah, so, I mean that would be the only reason to take Atlanta's job is because it's a little bit more job security in that that division. I guess you figure. But in the end, I it. mean, no one is firing you if you're winning. No, absolutely right. But so. I, I guess with Oakland, you'd have to make a smaller. I mean, if Oakland finishes seven and nine this year, you're probably not firing for Cobb. Coach. They have Oakland, yeah, 
Cleveland and Green Bay. So that's two in a row for Cleveland. Uh, Green Bay, I think it would make a lot of sense to retain. For Murray, they have uh, San Diego, Tennessee, and Indianapolis. Man, Indianapolis has invested quite a bit in that running back spot over the years. So. Jeez, yeah. I think I posted on, on Twitter, uh, is it like a done deal that Peterson ends up in Dallas, does it feel like? Feels that way, yeah. Because like, they let their their best running back they've had since Emmett Smith go, just let him walk. But you only have one franchise tag. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And they did use it on Des Bryant. Right. So. No, and I don't disagree with using it on Des Bryant either, but. It's tough that they couldn't get that get him re-signed, I suppose. But I guess that's the way it is. Nobody nobody values running back. Uh, let's see what else. Anything else about free agency? Uh, the Jaguars, I believe, are the team with the most cap space. Do you want to take a guess at what the number is? Have you heard it? No. $60 million? $67 million really? in cap space. Wow. wow. <laughs> like, they got an owner that will spend money, too. Do they, does he know he has a team? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The Colts have $41 million. The Raiders have $53 million. The Jets have $54 million, which is really strange for a New York team to have so much cap space. Were the Colts attached to Randall Cobb? That might be a fun fit there. Yeah, I think I did mention Yeah, that, be, I, I'd like that. The Browns have $53 million in space. That team, I mean, I know they, they took my Bills' first-round pick, but holy cow. Like, it seemed like they did everything right last year, and they just seemed to be back at square one. Yeah. I can't believe how down they are already on uh, on Manziel. I mean, I get why they are, but man, that happened quickly. Sure, they they're the example of having thrown everything at trying to fill that QB position and just nothing work. I mean, how many big QBs have they moved? They moved back into the first round for Whedon. It was a bust. Which is weird. Yeah, moved back into the first round for Manziel. They're yeah. already signing McCollin it, whatever. I think the Bills were lucky to not get. Get a piece of that. Yeah, our buddy Tim Graham disagreed with that, but it, that almost seemed like he, he likes uh, McCowan. I, I don't know. If McCowan came in with Buffalo, I definitely wanted him to be the backup, and I wouldn't want to sign my backup for $5 million a year or whatever they signed him for. Well, it is going to be very fun on uh, the next month or so, seeing how all this shakes out. A lot of talent. For the NFL. And it'll be, be interesting said, yeah. uh, for me to see uh, what the Saints can do, because be, despite – having very little cap space, actually being in the red right now, they are one of the more creative teams in terms of uh, renegotiating renegotiating yeah. and moving money, and they're you know very good at that. So, uh, so what do they – I know you've said all along with Ingram, he might be the type of guy that just needs a second team. Now, he looked like he wasn't even going to need that last year, but he got hurt again. Um, I could see him resigning. You could? Yeah. Because I was going to say, they're going to need to fill that hole too, right? Who's, who's their running back right now? Oh, uh, well, I guess they Kyrie would Robinson. go with Kerry Robinson, yeah. which, you know. Who knows? Right, but it's knows? a running back. So, yeah. Right. No, I, I think that they would uh, like to re-sign him, but I think that if it comes down to really being only able to spend money on one guy and they have a chance to get someone who can improve the secondary or the defensive line, they might take their chances with Robinson. Yeah. You know, so. Or... Uh, yeah, you know, there are some really good running backs in the draft uh, that could be second rounders too. So, oh yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that will be fun. Third thing, last thing today before we move on, uh, I got a wrestling and a UFC UFC thing I wanted to throw at you. So I said before we rolled the highlight, make sure you watch this Ronda Rousey fight 
in case you haven't, so I wanted to talk about. And it's been interesting because, okay, she squashed a girl, right? And my heart bleeds for the hardworking Americans who love UFC and paid $60 for that fight. Yeah, but I mean, anyone that lived through Mike Tyson's prime knows that that's a risk. But Mike Tyson punched people in the face. (laughs) She gets people to tap out. She didn't even touch the girl. Yeah. In the end, the girl gets out of the ring, walks home. Sure. And doesn't even have a scratch to fix. Yep. I mean, the girl tactically obviously erred in running at her to start the match, got knocked to the ground, and put in an arm bar. I don't know. You don't even break. She didn't even break her arm. I mean, at least snap the arm in half. <laughs> I don't know how many. Uh, I don't know what her exact record is, but I would guess Undefeated. that Rousey has won all but maybe one or two of her fights by arm bar. So that's what you cannot let happen. <laughs> So easier said than done, apparently. But if you're UFC, what do you do with Ronda Rousey? Because that might be the last time you're going to get people to buy her as a headliner against another female. Who's the girl that wasn't there a girl named like the Terminator or something like that? Maybe she beat up Gina Carano though. Maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. Rousey is undefeated. You're saying? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, they're in a tough spot. Um, would you consider uh, her fighting a male? No, ah, uh, no, no. I don't. I don't think so. I don't because... know. I, 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 I don't know. That that's a good question. My guess is no. She is arguably the biggest star right now in UFC. Yeah, arguably. Or Bones, John, John right. Jones, right? But, but yeah, arguably, or say top three star. Sure. And they have the dilemma of having no one for her to fight. Right. Yeah. Uh, I know boxing faced this issue early on. And I'm not sure. I don't follow women's boxing. But I think it was Layla Ali would just crush people. Right. Because the women would just go out there and throw. She was actually. And had... eventually it was tough for her to draw money. Right. So she was skilled. Some of them. It just hadn't caught up yet. Uh, the guys have been doing this for however many, 20, 30 years and the girls have kind of just gotten into it. So, I mean, the guys fighting now would crush the guys that fought back then. And, I, yeah, I mean, it's a tough spot for her because you're kind of penalizing her for just being too good. But she's going to need someone to catch up or at least be be close because... Or she's just going to have to squash the next competitor after the next competitor as a semi-main to a... sure bigger draw of a male fight but she's I mean, not going to be able to headline a pay-per-view anytime soon the way she just did especially if the plan for her right now is to give cat zingato another fight no one is right. going to spend 60 dollars to see her i mean versus cat zingato in a main event anytime right soon. And, and that's part of the problem is with that with boxing too maybe less so because i don't know it's probably the same thing with boxing is you might lose one because you might just get tagged one day. And I know that didn't happen. She didn't even throw a punch in a fight. It would be interesting to see like a scorecard. I don't know if UFC has scorecards. but uh, Yeah, no punches thrown, right. no punches landed. There right. was no punches in the fight. But, uh, there was no kicks either. So some, but what I was getting at is sometimes you get tagged and you just lose a match you shouldn't. It doesn't appear that was the case in this one. So I don't know why they would expect things to be different the next time around. Maybe the... Girl does the something. girl could argue she erred in sh- in her strategy. Right, that she was too aggressive. But like you said, who's gonna 
shell out the money to see that. Mike Tyson was almost like a freak show type thing. Like, and there is almost incredible over- money always in seeing a guy pummel another guy's face. Right? Is there money in seeing Ronda Rousey put another girl in an armbar? Yeah, I, I mean, there's some sex appeal to it, I guess. Rousey's like, like you said, she's the face maybe of UFC, but she has no competition. I think that was maybe Gina Carano's problem too. Now Carano got beat, but she was a pretty face. She was uh, an advocate for the. I mean, they're both good advocates for the sport, but yeah, they just don't have competition. You know, Vince McMahon's thing, the the thing that Vince McMahon always said will hold UFC back is their inability to build stars because guys would inevitably lose fights uh, and lose them in fluky ways. Right. Sort of the opposite thing has happened with Rousey in that she's won and she's won them so quickly and I mean, she could still get tagged. If there's some girl out there that has a boxing background, I mean, that's that puncher's chance thing. I mean, if she gets tagged and knocked out, I'm not sure that that's better. See, the problem with Rousey is her best attribute is her ground game. So if nobody's close in the ground game, then if she got, like, in a boxing match where she couldn't take the person down, maybe I think that the person best, knocks her out fast. The best thing that could happen for her is to go toe-to-toe with someone for three and a half rounds or four rounds, sweat it out, and have a legitimate reason to build a Rousey versus this person too. Yeah, sure. That's a way where she could draw as a main event pay-per-viewer again. And that's a problem with the sport that relies on pay-per-view. Oh, yeah, for sure. Have you heard anything about – has she called out a guy or anything like that? Or There's just been a lot of talk in the last couple of days about whether or not now would be the time to consider her versus uh, – a male. I think there has been a male that's called her out. <laughs> okay. Um, that's interesting, I guess. I I mean this in the least sexist way possible, but guys and girls are built differently. So if they're going to fight in the same weight class, I think that might be tough. Uh, I think a strong guy at one weight compared to a strong girl at the same weight is generally going to be stronger. I know that might come across as sexist, but I don't mean it that way. I just think Physiologically, I think they're built different. I don't know, though. I mean, if she's just going to put a guy in an armbar and threaten to break his arm, then I guess it doesn't matter. She's got some time. I guess she is going to uh, to do a movie, I think, next. Like The Expendables 5 or something? She was uh, in those, wasn't she? Yeah. I don't know what exactly, but... Um, My problem with boxing and UFC... Um, she just said, yes, I'm going to make a movie, but I'm not going to say anything about it. Oh, okay. My problem with boxing and the UFC... Maybe in particular the UFC. These guys train so hard and so long for one match that, and I'm not an expert, obviously, in any sort of martial arts. It almost seems like they're just too beat to do anything. Then, like after the fight, they have to like recover and then start training again. It's like they could fight two times a year. The official line from Dana White is: "We had a deal that she's going to do a movie after this fight. So when she's done with her movie, we will talk." Yeah. Yeah, I. good luck, I guess. I, I'm not sure what to do with her. Real quickly, speaking of drawing money, uh, the WWE has found a way to crack the mainstream, which is always a huge goal for them, is how can we be a presence in mainstream media? And they've done it with Jon Stewart sort of brilliantly, and they've done it because Jon Stewart has a kid who loves wrestling and just sort of brilliantly decided to cut a promo 
on Seth Rollins on his show, and the WWE very smartly uh, reached out, and he was on Raw last night, did a great segment with Seth Rollins, just totally, it's really hard sometimes in those big arenas. They basically did a daily show in the middle of the ring with Seth Rollins as the host and Stewart as the guest. Okay. And those are tough crowds, especially when you're not from wrestling. Sometimes they don't buy it. Sure. Uh, and it was a lively crowd, and it it worked well. And uh, uh, Stuart uh, got the last laugh in the end by kicking Seth Rollins in the nuts <laughs> and getting the hell out of there while Randy Orton did a, ran a little interference. It was great, and uh, it will be interesting to see if uh, if Stuart has some kind of role in WrestleMania. And what's great about it is more than almost anyone, Stuart has cred, right? I mean, this is a guy with serious cred. People think he's hilarious. Sure. People love his shtick. Uh, he's just a guy that I think his stamp of approval is huge, and I think he can. The only thing I would say, and I don't. This is probably more of an old-fashioned wrestling take, but when you think of like hardcore conservative, you think more of like a wrestling fan. Or if you're going to think of where they lean politically, you would assume it's conservative, but that's probably more wrestling of the past and the whole idea of getting someone from outside of wrestling is to draw people who don't normally like wrestling right but i mean as far as he would go over like in a stadium but maybe that's all in the past maybe the 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 redneck fan or whatever is is more in the past because he's he's got a very liberal following if you're if you're hardcore conservative you might not like right my point is if your point is that the average follower of wrestling doesn't love Stewart, they're fine with that because the average follower of wrestling is clearly going to be watching WrestleMania. Sure. So their whole, the whole reason they've reached out to the Mike Tysons or the Donald Trumps or any of the other celebrities they've had over the years is to get the people outside of the world of wrestling to have their eyes on their biggest show, WrestleMania. And if Jon Stewart is that guy this year, they can convince him to do more, which it seems like he was into it and his kids are into it and he's talked about wanting to be more Involved with his family seems like a perfect opportunity for him, and I think it's great for them. Was he? Was this last night on Raw? Yeah, he was on Raw last night. I didn't even hear about it. I wonder why. All right, Uh, that is it for three things. This is what we got from here on in. Take a break, Greg Wyshynski. Come back with the book club. Talk baseball with Jonah Carey and close it out with one last thing. Our next guest is from Madawan, New Jersey, and is a graduate of the University of Maryland. He is the editor and main contributor of the Puck Daddy blog on Yahoo, co-host of the Merrick vs. Wyshynski podcast, making his 10th appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscasters, welcome to the Puck Daddy, Greg Wyshynski. What's up, Greg? How you doing, buddy? Doing really good. I hope I can get you to talk about hockey. I hope you don't have... Terps fever with them being what number ten in the nation right now. <laughs> well, I mean that's why they moved, right? That's why they moved conferences is, is for the hoops. Wasn't for the football, that's for sure. No, no, it was for the hoops. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I guess uh, who needs Duke, right? They didn't need that rivalry. They're, uh, well, that's just. I mean, they'll they'll do well in that conference and, and beat up on a bunch of people, but I mean, it's still never gonna. I mean, for for those of us who 
grew up with the right well, I grew up with it. I didn't grow up in Maryland, but like who, you know, went to school there or, or, you know, understands the dynamics of the ACC and, and all those great rivalries. I mean, there's no, there's no replacing a victory over Duke or NC. You know, it's never right. going to be a situation where that's ever going to be replaced. Let me ask you this real quick. Now, the Red Sox had to lose that, uh, that game seven, the Aaron Boone game. You know, and then they got that revenge the next year with coming back from 3-0, sort of the way they did it. Mm-hmm. Whenever I think of Duke and Maryland, I think of the game that Maryland lost with a 10-point lead with a minute left. And I know that Maryland, after that, won a national championship. Did, but did they ever get a direct revenge on Duke in a way? Is there, a, is there like a key Maryland over Duke game that's just escaping my mind or... There have been, I mean, there have been some in the regular season, but I mean, the real, the real issue is that, you know, it's, it's, it's such a lopsided rivalry and it's always going, it's always had, always had that dynamic of, of the, uh, the young up and comers, uh, trying to unseat the Kings, you know, it's always had that dynamic. So it's, the only revenge that you could take would be to even the playing field. I mean, like growing up a Devils fan, um, to bring it to hockey for a second, there was always that. that imbalance of, of the Devils and the Rangers just because the Rangers were the established team and uh, then they, you know, they beat us in 94 and they won the Cup and uh, it, it was it was tough to deal with. I mean, you, especially when you go to the building and it was always like 70% Rangers fans. But during the 90s when they fell apart and the Devils, you know, won two more Cups all the way through, through 2003, then all of a sudden you felt like you were on even footing. Then, then the rivalry became something different and in some ways less fun. I mean, like I think the, the rivalry for me growing up was and the same thing with Maryland and Duke. Part of the fun of it was that you were on the underdog side and that when you did get a victory, it it really felt special. And I think it's more, I, I wonder what it's like on the other side of that equation. I'm sure it's more like a sense of relief or we've protected the King and chess you know, it's 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 got to be a different dynamic for the team that's favorite versus the the underdog in those in those situations. I had a I have a really interesting uh, wrinkle to the Rangers and uh, Devils rivalry. I'm not sure if you're aware of. So every well for the last two years now, Harvard and Yale have played a hockey game at Madison Square Garden, and uh, the ambassador for the game, whatever that means, has been Mark Messier for the for the last <laughs> two years. Okay, so I, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, I imagine being an ambassador is one of the reasons why they created the Mark Messier Leadership Award. I mean, an ambassadorship sounds like a, another facet of leadership to me. Right. So uh, his connection to Yale versus Harvard, beyond I think he has a relative that plays for Harvard. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I sort of think it was a way for him to promote his ranks he's building. I'm not exactly sure, but anyway, uh, the point being that he hands out the MVP award that they give out at the end of the game. So this year he gave it out to a Yale kid from New Jersey named Charles Orzetti, uh, who uh, is also known for scoring a goal in the national championship game for Yale. But uh, when Orzetti went up to him, uh, he said something to him, Messier laughed, and then they started interviewing him. And I thought he said, they asked him what he was going to do with his trophy, and I thought he said he was going to put it next to his national championship trophy. And I thought he was taking a swipe at Harvard. But what he actually said, I found out later, was he's going to put it next to one of his Devil Stanley Cup trophies. And he, <laughs> he was trolling Messier. And I guess what he said to him when he went up to him was something about uh, 
uh, I'm a big Devils fan, so I don't know if I can take this award from you or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't, and that's again, it's like. So I guess it cuts it, deep. I, I mean, Messier <laughs> has 94 over over the Devils. He's also got all the Edmonton Cups. I think he's okay. <laughs> uh, hard hard to troll Messier. Like I, I, you have to you have to have a séance uh, and uh, resurrect one of the dead Montreal Canadiens from like the mid uh, 20th century. Maybe they control him, but it's very hard for anybody else to troll him. Ballsy to try to do it, I think. Though I would have, uh, yeah, I give him credit for it. I yeah. wouldn't have done it personally. I would have, uh, I would have said thank you. But uh, uh, everyone, <laughs> everyone's different, I guess. Uh, Greg, I got to talk to you about this real quick too. Uh, it's been miserable here, man, in Buffalo, hockey haven or whatever we're calling it. Uh, I can't remember a year where it's just. It's not about the losing because we everyone expected that. It's not a big deal. Nobody thought the team would be good, and for the most part, everyone hoped they would be bad. But what's been frustrating and hard is how uh, divided it's cr- created. Uh, it's created a clear division between the media and the fans, especially. And then as the season has gone on, a division between the media and the media here. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Mike Carrington uh, fighting with some other media member over... Uh, over the team and the tanking and all these things, and it's frustrating. And I can't wait for it to be over, honestly, and I can't imagine what it would be like if in the end they ended up with the 28th pick or the 29th pick. I can't (laughs) can't imagine that. But I do want to ask you this. What was wrong with what they did on deadline day? I don't understand why it aggravated people. To me, it was a last-place team selling off expiring contracts, and uh, I couldn't understand quite what the aggravation, especially from the Canadian media, was. Well, it's, I mean, I think from the Canadian media, it's always a sense of, like, honor and pride, and no one's supposed to take a deep dive, which is exactly why the Leafs are in the predicament that they're in, which is that they're never allowed to be terrible for a few years and, and bottom out. Although it seems like the Toronto media is kind of coming around to that idea now, seeing how, how deep the cuts have to be and trying to make this team better. Um the only, I mean, the only trade I took issue with was the Neuwirth one because the only reason it was made is because he was playing well. <laughs> He's also on, was on an expiring contract, though. Well, that's besides the point. I mean, oh, it is. It's, oh, come on, please! It's the second starting goalie they traded this year. Both on expiring uh, contracts. It's it's such a clear it's a clear indication that they simply don't want anyone to play well in goal. They have uh, Andrew Lynn back with a complete project and they've got Chad Johnson who has been atrocious this season and I mean it, you're not you're not seriously going to try to obfuscate the fact that they're tanking right I mean like it sounds like you're trying to rationalize these moves they're making them so they can be bad the only way that they can be I just bad don't know is why you wouldn't do that. what Tim's doing I don't Ted's not going to make them bad Tim's got to make them bad but I just don't know why you I don't I couldn't imagine not making those moves I I don't know what the faux pas is I don't know I just feel like there's a lot of pot calling the kettle black because I feel like every team in their position would do the same thing. Right, they would tank. I mean, the it, it doesn't seem like anyone's as frustrated with uh, Phoenix who tro- who traded a or yeah Phoenix Arizona whatever traded a 28 year old player who had a, an, a another year left on his contract and certainly could be a, a part of a positive aspect of the team. Why? Why? What value did um, Norvirth and and Enroth have well, on the team? If there is, and listen, I have no problem with either of them, and I think what they did at the deadline, you know, helps to ensure the, the, the chance to get one of those kids. 
Um, and that's got to be the goal for both teams. That's what they've sort of built their, their franchise plan around. But in the case of, of, of Arizona, I don't think they got the same flack that Buffalo got because they traded away three assets and, uh, and then got a nice bounty back for them. Kind of, kind of like what Darcy Regeer was doing before he, he got fired, uh, in the Pommonville trade and other trades where he was get, he was getting praised for, Dumping these salaries and dumping these veterans, and then much better and then assets. Getting, though. getting a bounty back for them, they were much better assets. I mean, if they still had Tyler Myers yesterday, they would have gotten a much similar return. Like you're saying, I mean, they weren't trading Thomas Vanek or Jason well, Pommonville I mean, or Ryan Miller yesterday. <laughs> the Tyler Myers trade was for a guy who who can't help them this year. But that was a great trade. <laughs> yeah, it was great because he can't play this year and he can't score goals and he can't help them win games. But I, I couldn't think of a better trade if you're gonna for the what they gave up. I can't think of a better return. What who would have been a better partner and a better return? They they got arguably a guy who's gonna score thirty five to forty goals, thirty to forty goals for the team for ten years. Right for for Connor McDavid or Jack Eichel because he's either he's, his presence his non presence on the roster will help them lose this year. It was a perfect trade. It's as perfect as the Horton Clarkson trade. It helped both teams. <laughs> Look, I got no problem with Buffalo tanking. I just said it's a, it's a, it's weird hearing this from you that you think there's some rationalization for some of these moves when obviously all of the moves Tim Murray has made, uh, for the most part throughout the season has been to build a team that'll lose. Cause he knows that the players won't throw games and he knows that Ted won't throw games. So the only thing he can do is, is make moves to make the team as bad as possible. Well, I think some of the things that he's, he's done are beyond that, like not calling Pissick up, for example. Uh, at all this season, who's probably NHL ready is is maybe an example of that. Uh, but I just don't. I, I just think it's strange how much how much negative publicity they're getting for it because a everyone else would have done it and b everyone else does it. Everyone trades well, expiring contracts when they're in thirtieth place. They've, well, because I think the difference, to be honest with you, is, is when you look at teams, a team like, for example, Phoenix or Arizona. It would, I don't think they came into the season thinking it would be like this. I think they came into the season thinking that they might contend. And then their goaltending was atrocious, and Mike Smith's like the worst thing in the league this year. And then they, they didn't contend, and they've, they've went to the bottom of the standings, and then, and then they said, all right, well, we need to rethink this. And, and then they, they kind of changed, changed horses in midstream. Buffalo has been quite blatant about what the season is going to be for at least two years. To the point where Tim Murray was upset that the NHL tr- changed the draft lottery rules. To the point where Eichel and McDavid both had games in Buffalo. I mean, it's 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 a bit more obvious in Buffalo's case than I think it is in Phoenix's case. But I'll say this about the Coyotes. Like, and I've said this a couple times, and I said it on our podcast and, and some other places. I still don't understand why there hasn't been more backlash about a team that was in financial ruin a, f- a few years ago, and the NHL right. and its teams were, were propping up this team to mm-hmm. keep it alive. And now they've got an ownership that uh, is a bit more stable. And basically what they did on, around the deadline was they traded three really good players to the Rangers, the Blackhawks, and the Blues. And in each case, they picked up salary on those contracts. And if I was somebody in the Central Division, or if I was somebody in the Metro Division, and I see this thing go down, I see these, these assets moved, um, and the Coyotes actually spending money to allow those teams to fit those players in, under their cap, I said to myself, where, I kept the receipts, Mr. Bettman. Where do I get my, my dough back from, from when I, I was propping up the Coyotes and giving them alive? Because now they're so flush with money 
apparently, that they can pick up the freight on Vermette or on, or on Yandel and allow these trades to occur. It's, it's got to be infuriating to see that, that, that happen if you're one of these teams that didn't understand why they were uh, kept around as long as they were. Yeah, I, I get, I get, uh, I get some of the frustrations, I guess, with the Sabres, but I just think that any other team, uh, would have done what they've done. And, and I, you know, for, it's somewhat of poetic justice to me because I was a, you know, a fan who sat there on July 1st, 2007 and, uh, watched an owner let the two captains walk away simply because he didn't want to pay. Yeah, you know, and now oh, right, yeah. Now we're. But I do. I'll I'll take issue with the any team. Any team would do the same thing in their situation. I don't think any team would. I mean, the Devils at one point this season could have easily just gone down the tubes, but they decided not to to their detriment. I think, but it's not every team that has the um, the understanding from the market and the wherewithal to do what the Sabers and the Coyotes are doing. I, I, I disagree, and especially in Canada, like it's a, it's really hard. Uh, to, to gut a team and and die to the bottom in Canada without there being extraordinary backlash from the, the fans and from the media. And I, I don't think that every team can do it. Yeah, well, then they're making a mistake. I mean, I don't know. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I, I don't see what, wish, what is the best they could have finished this year in the Eastern Conference? Well, it's, 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 it's an impossible question to answer because they weren't built to win. I mean, you, you, it's well like the when, team when, that they entered the season with. Uh, which, yes, the team I mean, they, the they with did. Was a team built to finish last. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's hard. It's impossible to look at this team and say what could they have been or what would they have been when they've had a two year plan now that's come down from from ownership to to be terrible. So, I mean, that's that's it. I mean, that's the path they chose. I don't think it's a bad path. I don't think they should get grief for it. Um, they might if they don't end up with Michael or McDavid, and rightfully so. Um, but well, yeah, it'd be the biggest disaster in franchise history. This way, this way, I don't think that you necessarily can fault them. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I didn't pay for it, though. I wasn't willing to pay for it. That's the one thing I wouldn't do. I mean, I've, I've only been to one game this year, you know, but I don't know. They still get 19000 down there most nights. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh I didn't want to talk about them the whole time, so let's switch off this real quick. Uh, Carey Price or Ovechkin? Who's your MVP so far? Or someone else? It's Carey Price. Yeah. Um, I think Ovechkin's an interesting case because he's going to probably wind up winning the Richard and the Hart Ross. And I I wonder how... I mean, look, look, anyone who's followed the Capitals for years and followed Ovechkin for years knows that as Nick Backstrom goes, he goes. And Backstrom's point over the years of seen... And I wonder if there is going to be any siphoning of votes from Ovechkin to try to give Backstrom some love. I doubt it. I think his goal total will be high enough where it's going to be impossible for people not to vote for him. But I wonder if there might be some, some siphoning off of votes to Backstrom. But in, in Price's case, I mean, Price and Luongo, I think, are both two guys that have carried their teams as far as they, they've gone. And in Price's case, I mean, at one point this season, Montreal's offense was one of the worst in the, in the conference, and they were still one of the best teams in the conference because of what Price has done. He's he's been brilliant for them, and and he's been brilliantly uh, important for them. So I still think that it's Price's year. Now that Patrick Kane's out of the running, I think it's Price's year. Yeah, I'm surprised that uh, Luongo is the second goal you named, not because he hasn't had such a great season, but I, I'm just surprised. Wasn't a little bit more love for uh, Pekka Rene? 
No, I think Rene's got a lot in front of him, and more in front of him than, than Luongo has. I mean, Luongo, to me, right. uh, on a team with a terrible goal differential to begin with, I mean, how, how low could you go if Luongo wasn't there? I, we talked to George Richards, uh, the Miami Herald beat writer on our podcast today, and basically said, you know, what are their playoff chances right now? They're only a couple points back at Boston. What are their playoff chances if Luongo is hurt to the point where he can't play? And he's just like, well, they're done. And, and that's the truth. I mean, he, he is he is the reason why they are within sniffing distance of the wild card, along with the fact that the Bruins can't seem to get out of their own way and put a winning streak together. Yeah, that's interesting, too. What do you, what do you think is better for hockey, uh, Florida and Calgary getting the eighth spots or Boston and L.A.? Boston and L.A., because yeah. it, it would set up Montreal-Boston in the first round, which would be amazing. And L.A., I mean, I, I, I just love... I love dynasties. I love team, and I love watching the Kings in the playoffs because they've got this ruthless efficiency um, and assassin-like approach to the postseason. That is something I've never seen. Before. I've never seen a team in any sport be able to coast for the majority of the regular season and then uh, become unbeatable in the in the playoffs. So they're like the Claude Lemieux of, of hockey teams. It's just like it's the most amazing thing I've. I've ever seen uh, as far as the championship team goes, and they could easily do it again this year. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about those two teams is if Boston and L.A. gets in, you could make a case that you could see both of them make some kind of legitimate run in the playoffs, maybe L.A. more than Boston, uh, whereas Calgary and Florida, you both kind of think would be the it's great to be here team. Maybe we get one of the two games at home, but probably we're losing them five games to the uh, to the. Conference. Yeah, but, and the other thing that you want, obviously, is sort of that Cinderella aspect. In, in the playoffs, that always makes life more interesting. And and it's in this case, it's not going to be a team that squeaks in. But I think that you're going to look at teams like the Islanders and the yeah. Predators I was thinking as Islanders, two teams yeah. that have yeah they haven't won in forever, and they're going to kind of fit that bill as being the teams that you kind of rally around and hope on long playoff runs just because of the enthusiasm in the market. And Winnipeg, Winnipeg. the same way too. I mean, yep. Winnipeg could be that team, like you said, that uh, that could be the Cinderella team too. So you don't you don't necessarily need to suspect stack the deck with Calgary and, and with, uh, with uh, uh, Florida as well. What a shocking end to the season. Well, I mean, shocking is the wrong word, but what a what a pol- polarizing picture the end of the season would be uh, with Gary Bettman handing the cup to John Tavares on Long Island to end the, to end the season. That'd be interesting. An interesting photo. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be fun. And it would also be fun to have them go on a run and especially have the, it'd be fun to have them play the Rangers in the, uh, the, the the swan song for Nassau Coliseum. I, I, this city would be consumed by hockey if there was an Islanders-Rangers series this postseason because of, of what it means to that to that franchise and that building and because we haven't had one of the... Even Francesa would be into that, right? Yeah, it's a time when all the, the, the casual hockey fan media kind of would, would glom onto it, I think. I mean, Francesa being one of them. I mean, you know, there's a lot of... This is a great city for sports in the sense that when there are big events uh, and when teams do important things, it does become the talk of the town. And anytime you get an inter-city rivalry, inter-city rivalry uh, it's always the thing that takes over the media. And I think Rangers-Islanders would be just a hugely hot ticket around the, around the city. Well, outside of the finding out if the unsportsmanlike heel Sabres will get the uh, 30th or 29th pick, which is, I think, a, an interesting story to be following the rest of the year. What else are you looking at with the rest of the regular season? What are some other things that uh, have uh, Puck Daddy uh, interested? Well, like you said, the Western Conference bubble is really, really intriguing in the sense that not only do you have the 
sharks and kings battling with the wild and and uh, jets for the wild card, but then you also have the flames now completely in play with the loss of Giordano uh, and looking like they might be the team that, that one of those teams replaces. So you have that. And then, you know, the award stuff is always interesting, too. There's been a lot of discussion today about the Calder. And you have Philip Forsberg, who probably will finish in the same neighborhood as Nathan McKinnon uh, as far as uh, points for a rookie, maybe even a bit more. And there's no, there's no diminishing his importance to that team uh, as, as they needed offense and, and he provided it. But it's going to be really hard to overcome the accomplishments that Aaron Ekblad's had in Florida as far as being a complete defenseman and a number one pick um, at his age. But then he probably won't even finish first in, in rookie scoring for defensemen. So it's, it's going to be a, a tangled little, little, uh, little race for the Calder. But, um, you know, it, we'll see where it goes. I, I think right now the awards are kind of coming into focus. I don't, I don't think Weber loses the Norris. Um, Rene or Price will win the Vezina. Price or Ovechkin probably win the Hart. And, uh, and I think the Jack Adams should, will probably go to Lavulette. I can't imagine it wouldn't, but then you have Louis Desjardins being kind of the other choice there. Because that Canucks team is pretty terrible, and they're probably going to be a playoff team. Two of the three guys you mentioned for a call, they were drafted just before the Sabres picked. <laughs> Such is life. All right, but they would have never picked that Blatt anyway. Um, but I don't think, uh, as much as I am hopeful with how much progress it seems like Gregorenko has made uh, this season. I don't think he's ever going to come close to being Philip Forsberg, unfortunately. Uh, but oh, um, uh, Puck Daddy Greg Wyshynski is at Wyshynski on Twitter. Uh, Merrick versus Wyshynski just about every day. Uh, great hockey podcast there. Greg has, uh, last thing, uh, you had a tough off season, obviously, uh, with Puck Daddy, and I was always there to offer support for sure. Uh, things I'm sure as the season have got on, you've been able to just kind of focus on hockey. How, how has uh, Puck Daddy uh, went uh, so far this season? Are you happy with uh, how things have went during the playing season after what a tough non-playing season you guys had internally? Oh, for sure. I mean, like, you know, Josh Cooper joined us after he lost his gig at Tennessee, and he's been great. He's done some really, really great work. He just did a, an oral history of the uh, Sidney Crosby gold medal uh, winning goal. That was, <sighs> I thought, fantastic. Um, you know, Leahy is still the backbone. I'm the hype man. Jen Neal's been great. Um, it, it, the, the cool thing about it is that we're always trying to try new things and do new things. And this year it was trying to be uh, in the same room for trade deadline, which has been fun. And, and then also we've done a lot more video stuff this year. I just did a, uh, a sit down with Hillary Knight from the women's Olympic team, uh, that just went on the blog today to, you know, try to, try to utilize the, the talent that we have here, uh, at Yahoo on the video side and the fact that we have this big, beautiful studio in, uh, in our Manhattan office. So it's, it's been fun trying new things, doing new things and, uh, and still, uh, I think providing a, uh, unique and, and different and, um, and, uh, interesting, uh, take on the news of the day. Were At least you, that's our hope. Were you as sort of like confused as I was at why the NHL had a problem with you having a drink with that official or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it was what it was. It wasn't a case where when we were there in the moment that it even occurred to either of us that it would be an issue. And, right. You know, I, I've, I've had conversations with the league about it, and, and finally they were strangely silent during most of it. And I still think that nothing would have happened had he officiated that game the next night. Um, outside of 
people treating this thing as being the goof that it is. But the minute they took action about it, then it became a news story. And, you know, at the end of the day, he's still an official that makes some problematic calls. And, and he probably thinks I'm a guy who says some problematic things. But at least we met and clear the air on some stuff and have a better, better understanding of where each of us come from. I think it's proof that you got to be at least in the top 80 in the Hockey News 100 this year, though. <laughs> you <laughs> You'd think that, but, you know. You know, you're kind of in the 90s, kind of hovering in there. The wind blows. And it, all, it all depends on how nice I am to some of their writers. Cause I, I know at least one of their writers isn't a really big fan, so what are you going to do? Thanks for all the time, Greg. Had fun talking to you. Anytime. Thanks for having me. All right, I want to thank Greg Wyshynski, the Puck Daddy, for being on the podcast today. Been with us from the very beginning. Episode two, two I believe. Yeah, yeah. That sounds right. Uh, so it's always great to have the Puck Daddy on. Uh, Book Club, one last time I wanted to talk real quickly about Red Army because, well, for two reasons. One, I haven't found what the next thing for Book Club will be just yet. <laughs> uh, I did see a few books that could be interesting, and I did think about uh, maybe trying to see if there was another sports documentary because I did kind of enjoy uh, this route. But we'll decide by next week what the next step is for the book club. But I was excited this morning to wake up. Uh, Stern is on vacation. Well, actually, he's doing he's fulfilling some uh, AGT responsibilities this week. So there's no Stern show. So I've uh, been listening to Opie and Jimmy uh, a, a bit more this week. And uh, Gabe... Polsky, the director of Red Army, who was on our podcast last week, was supposed to call in on the phone. And Slava Fatisov, one of the main characters in the film, was in studio. I don't think Gabe ever actually said anything. (laughs) I can't totally recall, but I want to say it was mostly Slava mumbling and no-selling all the jokes and uh, promoting the film and his rotten sort of miserable way which is what makes this film so great i talked about it a little bit last week the relationship that the film has with slava and the way that that kind of uh balances the uh the viewer's relationship with russia and uh i thought it was pretty cool jim norton kept describing hockey as uh Oh, what was it? Pucking around or Pucking something? around. Yeah, he kept saying, <laughs> pucking around. He said to him, do you still get to puck around? <laughs> Even though you're retired. And totally went over uh, Fatisov's head. Did he do it as Chip? No. No? No, he just sort of straight manned it, you know? Now, I, I heard you And say they I... asked him if he liked Rocky Four. Again, he just didn't get it. I saw you tweet that... Uh... You thought they were getting the documentaries mixed up. They were, absolutely. Opie, Opie had definitely seen both, okay? okay? And Jimmy definitely had not. So there were times where Opie would say, I screwed up. I very much wanted to ask Gabe, what is the real story of why the original Russian coach was fired? Because the two films explain different reasons why. Oh, really? In the one film, the SPN one, they said the reason was they were supposed to uh, tie, tie the Czech Republic in a game or Czechoslovakia at the time in a game. So throw a game is what? 
fix a game. Right. And he refused. Okay. And in Gabe's documentary, Red Army, he says it's because he pulled his team off the ice and the Minister of Defense was there and was embarrassed or something. Okay. So Opie is there saying to Slava the 30 for 30 reason. And Jimmy's like, no, I thought it was the Gabe reason. And it was really awkward. And I was just thinking, man, Gabe's got to be so frustrated because they're clearly very confused. Opie was clearly very confused. What information he gained from the Red Army documentary and what information he gained from 30 for 30. I saw some retweets, though, from Opie, and it was uh, mostly positive about people that were pumped to get some hockey talk on their show. So good for good for Gabe, and hopefully it gets some exposure for his film. And in the end, both films are good, which helps, I think. Right. So you're never going to have someone really bad-mouthing one of them and then you know, thinking that, oh, I don't want to see that, and you thinking... You know what I'm saying? Like the crossfire is always sort of going to be friendly because both films were good. Right. But uh, one last time, uh, the documentary is called Red Army. Go to sonyclassics.com slash Red Army. It's playing in theaters all across the country now with more theaters opening every Friday. Uh, Friday the 13th, there will be some showings in Buffalo. That's going to be the return of Dazer. So I will be in... Uh, New Haven that night, but hopefully I'll get a chance to see the film somewhere uh, in on the big screen because I want to do that. Is that his next game? I thought I saw someone tweet that he was back in skates. Oh, he's been at practice. Yeah, he's practicing every day now. But that will be his first game back? Uh, they have a bye this weekend. Oh, okay. Snow that's game. why. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so, at Gabe Polsky on Twitter, at Red Army Movie on Twitter. You can find a lot of tweets about it on our uh, Twitter feed, and you can listen to my interview with Gabe uh, on last week's podcast. Did you get to that one? Yeah, I listened to both. What did you think of Gabe? Because he, he's he nerdy. Was, he was good. I, I I liked him from the standpoint of liking hockey. I, I, I don't know how comfortable. We've had people that were much more uncomfortable before. Some of them we've had back and have improved a lot. I can't remember who that was. He was very much awkward. He just... Uh, he, he wasn't there to make jokes or anything like that, nope. but uh, it was informative. It was an interesting interview, and I don't listen to all the interviews, full disclosure, but that one I did, and I was entertained, so it was good. It's, oh. a, it's an interesting interview because of who he came after. I mean that. Yeah, to go to from Anthony Cumia yeah. to Gabe Polsky is so that it's quite the uh, the, the contrast. I mean, just there, look right? at their backgrounds. You're going from sure. a guy who came up in heating and cooling. I went on to be a shock jock right, paid to, to a talk, to right. guy who was uh, uh, raised a Chicago hockey player and went on to be an Ivy Leaguer and uh, then went on to make films. We talked before about, and I mean, I didn't, I didn't see the film you did, but you were talking about how uh, at one point he's answering his phone and then just flips the camera off. Yeah, Fatisov. Right. Yeah. So for Gabe to include that in the film shows he has a sense of humor. Some people are better at like writing expressing those and, things yeah that type of form right so but i i found it entertaining and I'm, I'm interested i'm looking forward to seeing the movie please check it out uh we'd love to be able to help gabe in any way all right i'm excited to talk a little baseball and we're going to do it next with jonah carey
Our next guest is from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Currently lives in Denver. Writes for Grantland. Occasionally appears on Baseball Tonight. And is the author of Up, Up, and Away, which was released in paperback today. He is making his sixth, seventh appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Jonah Carey. What's up, Jonah? Seventh appearance, man. Seven timer. That's pretty good. That Where is, does that rank in the Pantheon? You know, that would be uh, probably solidly in the middle. Middle? Yeah, wow. Maybe, maybe upper uh, middle. You know, I think there's a big group of people who've been around six or seven. Okay. And then there's, you know, maybe a few people above that. And then I guess there's a huge group of people in the one or two time area. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. I'll take that. That's not bad. Yeah. No, it's it's very well and very, very kind. I was just thinking about this. I didn't have time to look. Where were you right before Grantland? Like, was your first appearance, were you with Grantland already or or not? I can't think. I joined... I, my first article for Grantland was in July of 2011, so you can tell me based on the history of your show. Right, yeah. So, no, you were – our first show was in January of 2011, and you were in pretty early. So I would think we probably had you on once before Grantland. So I was probably ready for Fangraphs at that point, I think. That's hmm. probably what it was. Yeah, in fact, in January 11, I was writing for Fangraphs. Gotcha. Uh, mm-hmm. We mentioned the book being released in paperback today. Uh, or Tuesday, I guess it was released in paperback, right? Today's yep. Wednesday at this point. Um, is there anything different about the paperback? Is there a new chapter, extended chapter? Is it just essentially a softer cover of the original book? Um, it has a new afterword. Uh, I didn't expect that there would be new developments when it comes to baseball in Montreal, but there have been in the last year. Uh, you had 97,000 people gather at Olympic Stadium last March, which was right uh, as the book was being released. A pretty pretty uh, nice for me. And uh, nice for Montreal baseball fans. You know, it was the Blue Jays playing the Mets, and it was an event organized by the Blue Jays and a company called Evento, which is, you know, like uh, Live Nation or Ticketmaster or what have you. And uh, it, it exceeded all expectations. And although there were some Jays and Mets fans, it was mostly just crazy people like me, just former Expos fans, wearing the gear and chanting, let's go Expos, even though they clearly <laughs> had not been in the Expos in that stadium for uh, a full decade. And it was pretty cool. And since then, you know, you've had some kind of back-channel movement uh, on the corporate front. This company called Bell. Bell is like, if, uh, I guess, if AT&T and ESPN merged. That's probably the easiest way to say it. They're a media giant and also a telecom giant. And they recently had hockey taken away from them by Rogers. Rogers is, uh, you know, the arch rival. They right. to the media companies. And so the thought is, at least according to the people that I've talked to, Maybe we could counter that by going with kind of a, an equivalent of MLB network, and we'd have a coast-to-coast baseball network, and a team in Montreal would be our kind of anchor tenant, so to speak. And so that's been kicked around, and they couldn't have the money to drop a billion dollars tomorrow if they want to. So uh, <laughs> that would be interesting, because if you look back at the history of the franchise, yeah, they didn't have a stadium, and you know there were, there, there were other adverse things. But the bottom line is, they never had committed ownership. That was always the biggest problem with the Montreal Expos, or at least they didn't after Charles Bronson sold the team. Starting in the early 90s, basically until the end, they didn't have it. And so if they really had a, a true you know, big-time owner that could spend money, not just spend money, but have vision and, and uh, long-term ideas, you know, that, uh, that would be pretty big. Obviously, you have to convince a lot of obstacles. You've got to convince Major League Baseball. There's a lot of things you've got to do, uh, but it could come into play. And so the, the afterword basically talks about everything that's happened last year. On the corporate front, those games, 
and all that stuff. There isn't necessarily a super obvious market ahead of them, is there? Like, you know, whenever you talk about a football team moving or expanding, you always have to think about LA first. Am I missing Mm -hmm. a a market that would be obviously ahead of Montreal if a team had to move or if they wanted to expand a team? Or would they just be, you know, one of the main front-running cities uh, based on, you know, like you said, some of the obstacles being overcome? So um, Rob Manfred came to speak at two different events that I was at in the last little bit. Uh, One was... At uh, in Bristol, right at ESPN headquarters, and I was there for our annual baseball summit, where basically everybody from uh, the writers, you know, Jason Stark and Buster Olney, to the TV people, to heck, people working social or, or HR or whatever, everybody who's even remotely associated with baseball shows up. And Manfred gave a talk to us, and uh, someone asked him about expansion. He's been asked before. He's been asked by Tyler Kepner of the New York Times, some other people. And what he said was. If there were to be expansion, he would definitely look international. And, uh, you know, he was pressed a little bit, and finally he said, you know, Montreal would be one candidate, maybe something like Monterey, Mexico. Those would be the, uh, the possibilities, basically. Gotcha. Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, I know as just a reader, just personally, not having the connection uh, to Montreal, the extra 2% at this point is still the definitive Jonah Carey book for me. But when I look back at, the time that you had promoting it, some of the different appearances that I've seen you make, I can sort of assume that this book was sort of the time of your life professionally, correct? No doubt about it. I have to tell you, I mean, I can't even claim bias because I wrote both of these books. So if I'm choosing one, then I'm choosing one. But I think Eckler's book is better uh, for a bunch of reasons. I'm a better writer now than I was in 2008 when I signed the book. That was a long time ago. When I signed the book contract for actually 2%. Uh, it's more personal which obviously is, makes it more fun, but it's just better that way. And I think right. the reporting's pretty robust, and the subjects were very cooperative, obviously, with the Rays. You know, they weren't necessarily willing to play ball because I'm trying to get their trade secrets on the page. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think it's a good book. You know, it, 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 you don't have to be an Expos fan. Ultimately, if you look at the history of any team over the course of 36 years, there are going to be interesting things, especially if you talk to every major person, if you talk to the cleanup hitter for these five years and the staff ace for this year and the closer and the general manager and the manager and the mayor, you know, all these things, you're going to get a pretty robust product. And, and so that's really what it is. And because it does have that kind of personal touch, I think that it, um, it resonates a little bit more. You know, at the beginning, it starts off in a little bit of a history lesson because I wasn't alive for the first part of the franchise. And then as you go along, I, I come of age, I, I overwhelming. It's not like there's a ton of me in there because I'm not as interesting. But just like little snippets here and there, and it gives you a little bit of context. And, uh, yeah, you put it together, and, and uh, it, it's a fun read, and I think it's an educational read, just because people don't they don't have that context. I think that even Exodus fans, quite frankly, don't necessarily know. Don't necessarily. They don't know all the stuff in the book. I mean, there's some original reporting in there. Uh, there's some stuff where if you're younger, let's say you're under 40, you might not be aware of some things that happened, let's say, in the 70s. And uh, it kind of ties it all together. So, uh yeah, I mean, it was it was absolutely a passion project and all that, but uh, you know, hopefully people will treat it as a, as a pretty serious work of journalism, too, because it was just three years working on this thing. When you look back at writing it, promoting it, uh, being proud of it, is there a certain moment that sticks out as the the moment that you'll remember about writing the Expos book? Um, yes, actually. It was when I... This was, it took a while, actually. I'd gone to... The Giants, public relations people, and I said, I want to talk to Felipe Ali. Felipe Ali used to be the manager of the Expos. 
And uh, it was a funny thing being an Expos fan. You could root for Larry Walker, Marquise Grissom, or whatever. Once you get to the 90s, those guys start leaving over and over. Three, four years, they're gone. Right. And so the only constant was the manager, who stayed quite a bit longer than that, uh, to the point where I actually owned not a Moises Alou jersey, but a Felipe Alou jersey. That gives you an idea. Think about that. Would you buy a Ned Yost jersey? No, you'd buy a Lorenzo Cain or an Eric Hosmer or whatever. But, uh, yeah, so that gives you an idea of his impact. He was uh, truly something special. And so I've gone to the Giants, and uh, not for any fault of their own. I, I'm sure they tried, but they just weren't all that helpful in my quest to find Felipe Alou. And he's not the kind of you can't text the guy, you know, he's coming up on 80 years old, whatever. So finally I just showed up in spring training. I was in Arizona, and I'm in Arizona right now as I'm talking to you, actually. And uh, I said, uh, why get Felipe Alou? They said, go to the backfield. It's kind of a minor league detached facility. I said, okay. So I go, and I ask the kind of office staff there, and they said, well... You know, Felipe is uh, all morning. He's going to be doing this, and he's doing this, and it felt like I was getting a little bit of a runaround. Maybe not on purpose again, but just it was, it was difficult. And so I said, "Listen, I need to get the guy." They said, "Come back tomorrow at some time, seven a.m." I said, oh, "Okay, fine." Wake up at five forty-five, whatever. Got to drive. I'm not anywhere near Stockdale, which is where Giants play. Drive across town, get there, see him. Just he's getting ready to do stuff. I said, "I really want to talk to you." He says, "After this scrimmage happens at whatever it is noon." I will be available for you. So I sit there for five hours, and I, <laughs> I mostly doodle with my phone for basically five hours. And um, he comes back and says, here I am. And he says, okay, let's do it. And we sat there, and he was a little under the weather, but he was very gracious, and he gave me an hour of his time. And uh, I have never been impressed, as, as impressed and that blown away by any interview that I've ever done. And I've been a journalist. Uh, I've been a full-time journalist. I was actually in college, and I was working full-time already for the local paper. So that was... 96, 97, so it's almost two decades I've been doing this for a living. I've never been more impressed with an interview. He just blew me away. And we talked about, you know, we definitely talked about the great players. We talked about Vladimir Guerrero and Pedro Martinez and guys like that, and, and he had a, a lot to say. But what struck me about Felipe was we would just start talking about things that had nothing to do with me. We talked about fishing, and it was fascinating. And we talked about religion. And I'm not a religious guy, but he didn't couch it that way. He didn't talk about whatever. Pick your religion. He didn't talk about communion. He didn't talk about... Uh, anything. I mean, it, it was it was spirituality is what he got into, and I was just blown away by this guy. And if you were a beat writer in that era covering the Expos, or even another National League team, just talked to him. The stories are well known that he was kind of this Yoda figure, and he told told these inspirational stories. But I just didn't have that because I was a uh, you know a college kid, and when he was managing the Expos, and then after that I, I moved away. So I never, I had never spoken to him before, so I didn't know about any of this stuff. And I would venture that even if you did have this kind of sense of Felipe as a mystical guy, maybe you got him in the scrum. Maybe you got five minutes with him. I got an hour. And now that he's removed from major league managing, he just you know, shot from the hip. He didn't care. He spoke very honestly a lot of, about a lot of things. He gave me insight into uh, baseball in Montreal and what had happened, you know, why it had failed, and just such a smart guy and such a thoughtful guy. You know, it's the kind of thing where you'd ask a question and he'd stop and think about it. And that's sort of a lost art. Maybe some of us are just, I'm very, I talk with my hands and my brain is going very fast. And I just, I fit words, words, words. And that's neither good nor bad, I guess. But it's just, maybe that's more normal, I guess, in our society. And the fact that he sat there and he was contemplative and then he gets into the answers. And you could tell that he's really delving into it. I was blown away by the guy. And I, I talked to, you know, Tim Raines is my favorite player of all time. I got an hour and a half with Raines. That was wonderful. Uh, I talked to Pedro. My God, Pedro. I actually did a... a People should check this out. This is really good. Grantland.com. Just Google Grantland, John Carey, Pedro Martinez. It's a video podcast. It's an hour and change, just over an hour. 
of he and I talking. That's also a fantastic conversation, probably the second best one in the book. Uh, and you could see it in videos, so you get the real feel for it. But the Felipe one, man, it, I, that'll stick with me until the day that I die. I was just really, really uh, blown away by everything that he had to say, and uh, it affected me. I, thinking about it now, it affects me, which is which is something you don't usually get from an everyday conversation. That is very cool. That is very cool. Yeah. yeah. You know, one thing about baseball books, for whatever reason, maybe just what I've read uh, – for some reason, like a lot of the books that stick out to me about baseball are about players. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. when I think of a baseball book, the number one I think about is Jane, Jane's uh, 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 Mantle book, and then there's a Clemente book that came out recently, which yep. I loved, and it's uh, a lot of books like that. There's not as many about teams. And reading your book, that was my favorite part about it, as I like the sort of. This book more about teams. I think I read Verducci did one about the Yankees. Maybe it was okay. Uh, I really like Jeff Perlman's uh, Mets book. I think it's called The Bad Guys One. Maybe and and then there's this and I like I like that uh, this sort of uh, not as much about a player and a career but more about a team and a franchise and I really enjoyed that that part of the Expos book for sure. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean I feel like. You know, any book it's the stories that carry it, right? And you need to have the narrators there to give that up. And, and, and Pullman, uh, that, that's, I think, his specialty. He really gets people to to go back to that era and to really talk about, you know, you get a feel for what it was, Walter Payton, what it was to play on the Showtime Lakers. Right. Um, and in both cases, not only from James Worthy, but it could be from a broadcaster or a fan or whatever. And, and you just, you need to be transported back to that point in time and to that situation. And, and that's, that's the job. Is You know, the writer... I was always taught, it's a very journalism cool thing, I was always taught to kind of get out of the way. If anything, the Expos book was a little weird because my editor said, insert yourself a little bit into the book. I said, that's no good. I'm some schmo. Like, nobody cares. They want to hear from Larry Walker. Uh, but what you find is you can get away with it a little bit, I think. And there are writers, by the way, who insert themselves a lot more. Very, very successful, awesome writers who do it. Um, and that's, you know, all right, too. A little different. But I, I don't know. I just My favorite stuff is always when you can coax the most stuff out of your sources. And uh, Perlman is one. I mean, the Clemente book you mentioned. Uh, I love Jane Levy's Sandy Koufax biography. That's one of my favorite books of yeah, all time. Yeah, I like the Sports Mets one a better, but yeah, yeah. That, that, that Koufax one is incredible, too. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you just you just want to be transported. I wasn't alive when Sandy Koufax pitched. If I can feel like I'm at, uh, well, it's Dodger Stadium, I guess, at that point, not at the field, but if I can feel like I'm at Dodger Stadium and... Uh, and watching these games, and I'm sitting in the stands, and you've done your job, and Jane Levy did her job. Yeah, I, I know there's a lot of Babe Ruth books out there, but I can't wait to see what, what she comes up with when, when her Babe Ruth book comes out, uh, probably next year, I think. When I think of, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, when I think of Jonah Carey, I think about sort of two things, to be honest. I think about this guy who's sort of an advanced stats guy, but writes about it in a way that doesn't put me off to advanced stats. And a guy who loves the Expos. You have a book now about sort of about writing about advanced stats and not putting me off about it and a really great Expos book. What would be the next kind of Jonah Carey book that you would love to write in some way? Uh, I would love to do a book on Barry Bonds, hmm. and, uh, but not an axe-grinding book on Barry Bonds. And there are people that have done that. I'm a Barry Bonds fan. I own a Barry Bonds autographed bat, and I've had that bat for for ages. My dad bought it for me. Uh, he's one of my favorite players of all time. And uh, I, PEDs don't really bother me. You know, I, I honestly, I just don't have any 
moral objection to it. There's a larger discussion to be had about the war on drugs and the incentives of, of trying to be better. And, and if I had a pill and I knew that it could make me better because it, I could get my kids to you know, make sure they go to a good college when I take it, yeah, I probably would. So uh, I don't really sweat any of that stuff. I just focus on the fact that he uh, was the you know, best player we've ever seen. Uh, I'm assuming nobody listening to this was alive for Babe Ruth or very few people anyway. Right. And, um, and not just that, but a fascinating character that once you do get into his head, I think there'd be interesting things there. Uh, but, you know, obviously it's an uphill battle because it's, I've never met the guy, and uh, if I just say, hey, I want to do this book, you know, first of all, if it even gets to him, it would probably get to a representative on a representative, and, and I do know some people who know him. Uh, the reaction would be, well, no, we're not going to do that. Or, or even if he wants to do something, he would put forth his own project. It would be a Bonds book, and he would handpick a writer who would be favorable, whatever. I'm not looking for a fluff book, and I'm not looking for an axe grinding book. I want a serious, rigorous biography. Uh, you know, and it would not be, I, I, despite being a Bond fan, it would be certainly uh, have some critical work in there, and I would talk to probably Jeff Kent, who doesn't like Barry Bonds, and right. I would talk to, uh, you know, teammates, and actually Philippe Alou, uh, you know, marriage Bond, too, and and uh, and just get kind of a full picture of the guy, because I think he's fascinating, and, um, you know, because of, of everything that's happened, nobody can get close to him, and, uh, you know, gosh, we're writing books about lesser players and, and lesser people and, and what have you. And, and Bonds is the guy. He is the guy since Babe Ruth. He's just the most, the best, but also the most fascinating guy. Uh, I'd love to do an A-Rod book, too, by the way. Uh, I think that would be fascinating, too. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. I, I honestly, I have no gauge of where I stand in the industry. I don't presume to have nearly the status that, let's say, I don't know, my colleague Buster Olney does, for example. Buster said, I want to do a book. Bonds and Buster know each other, and that could be something. If I say, hey, I want to do a book on Barry Bonds, I, who the hell knows if anybody cares, whatever. I, I don't assume that I have any uh, pull in that way, so we'll see. So I, maybe I need to write five more books, or maybe I need to have ten more years of career before I can even begin to broach a subject like that and get respected for it. I, I don't really, I'm not sure where I stand. I'm also not sure where Bonds stands, but uh, if I was waving a magic wand, that would be the one, probably. I don't presume it's going to happen anytime soon. I'll keep it in my hip pocket. Possibly I don't write another book for a few years, possibly I never write another book. Uh, but that is one that I would pay attention. But if, if that were going to happen, I would take that to a publisher and say, are you interested? And if they you know, made the right offer, I would probably do it. That's interesting, too, because when I think of books about Barry Bonds, I think of the Perlman book and the Game of Shadows book, and those basically yep. came out at the exact same time. So it would be really interesting to see how uh, you know, it's had to have been at least probably 10 years since those books. And if this book was five years away, let's just say for fun, it would be interesting to see how the 15 years would change the story of Barry Bonds or how it would be. Um, so I don't necessarily think Perlman approached his book as like, I'm going to grind an ax with, with Barry Bonds here. But um, I think that maybe a lot of the reporting, I think maybe the people were in a place where they uh, had that in their mind or something. It'd be interesting. Be, that would be, be really fun to, to see a different take on that, especially with all the time having passed or whatever too. Yeah, I think that's, well, I don't really want to go too in depth on, on the other books, but yes, yeah, I, no, what no. you say is what you say is reasonable, and uh, and I have a little bit of a different take. Let's put it that way. Got it. Fair enough. Uh, Two thousand and fifteen season is is right upon us. You're out there in uh, in Arizona, and you've had a couple pieces in the last few days on Grantland, uh, which got me a little bit excited about baseball and uh, with the season the Sabers have had. It will be certainly uh, fun to look into something besides 
uh, rooting for losses every day, which is what you do in, in the world of the Sabres in this year. But uh, the uh, the 30 column was really interesting because I wasn't at all surprised at who you had at 30 with the Phillies, I believe, and not at all surprised with the Nationals being one, but there was maybe some pri- some surprises in there as I was reading it. When you wrote it, were you surprised at all with a team and kind of where uh, they ended up shaking out when you ended up ranking them from 30 to 1? Well, I mean, I, I had it in my mind. You know, I follow baseball throughout the offseason. I am writing in the offseason, just less frequently. But, I, I mean, I've had in mind who I think is going to do well for a while because I'm researching and I'm looking at it. And um, you know, some of the surprise teams you cite – my number three team is the Mariners. My number five team is the Indians. My number seven team is the Blue Jays. My number eight team is the Marlins. And my number nine team is the Cubs. Those five being in the top ten, I think that uh, maybe people would, would project the Mariners in the top ten, but not number three. Maybe right. people might imagine the Marlins to be somewhere between, you know, above 15 or a little higher, but maybe not number eight, for instance. So I think that there were certainly, from a matter of degree, uh, some teams came in high, some teams came in low. Uh, the teams that made the World Series last year are the Giants, 18, are the Royals, 23rd. I'm just not that confident in them. And, and I think the thing that people tend to forget is that, yes, obviously the players are the ones who play the games and all that, but the the one governing force in our universe, the one thing that I believe most strongly in anything is regression. Regression is a real thing. If you, I'm going to use a very simplistic example, if you get struck by lightning tomorrow, you might meet the girl of your dreams the day after. I mean, I really do believe that. It's not a cosmic thing. It's not a religious thing. It's just that's how things work. Things tend to even up because that's the odds. Uh, that, that's just how it goes. And so you look at a team like the Giants or the Royals, and, you know, objectively, I think you could say that neither of them were all that good. They both kind of caught fire at the right time. They snuck in as wild cards in the World Series. Right. And that took, a lot of good, that took a lot of good fortune. And then, you know, both of them, both teams lost a lot of good players. Well, some good players, James Shields, Pablo Sandoval, and so forth. That in combination with regression makes me doubtful. Then you look at a team like uh, the Marlins, the Cubs, and they acquired talent. And, you know, they did pretty poorly last year. They finished below 500. Maybe they're due actually for some better luck in combination with them having better players. And I feel pretty good about them, actually. Uh, same thing with Toronto. You know, Toronto had some uh, mishaps last year, had some injuries. They signed some really good players. And I think that they were probably better on, on paper anyway than the 83-win team. I believe they won the 83 last year. The 83 last year. And uh, I think I expect them to do better this year. So if you start from that point of view, I think the default point of view is these teams made the playoffs this year. There's a pretty good chance they're going to make it next year. Then that's one thing. I don't take that view at all. I don't give a fig about what happened last year. I'm looking at what happened this year. And if anything, if I'm even going to remotely pay attention to last year, I'm inclined to think that the opposite is going to happen, that there's going to be a shift. doesn't mean that all good teams are going to regress. The Washington Nationals are an almost unimpeachable team. They won 90-odd last year. I'm pretty sure they're going to win 90-odd this year. You can't concoct a mathematical formula. If everybody gets injured, that's one thing, but they're very good. But if you're talking about teams that, for instance, clearly outperformed their run scored and runs against, so the simple way to say that is, let's say that you score 650 runs and you allow 650. You extrapolate that, you should be a 500 team. You've scored exactly as many as you've allowed. But if you only win 75 or you win 87 with, with as many runs scored as runs allowed, that's weird and flukish, and it means that there's a decent chance, maybe, that things could even out the year after. And so I'm looking for things like that, and I'm looking at health, and I'm looking at talent, and I'm looking at competition, quite frankly. If the rest of the division gets stronger, then maybe you get docked a couple wins and so forth. And uh, that's how I came up with it. And I absolutely got a lot of, 
whatever you want to say. I don't know, flack or, or, or heated discussion about a lot of teams. What so teams' fans are the most upset? Uh, Giants. Giants? Definitely. I mean, they won the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, don't you know they won three World Series in the last five years? <laughs> if we're really going to play the don't you know we won three World Series in the last five years, by the way, if we're just going to just play that card, without getting into any analysis, and Twitter isn't the place for nuance, <laughs> I would just say, what happened to two odd years in those five years? They right. did not make the World Series, nor did they make a playoff, which obviously is a simplistic thing. And that's actually a fun debate, even your odd year thing, because it's to the point that it's kind of wild. We're three out of five World Series, the other two didn't make the playoffs. That could be a real thing, aside from luck or whatever. And the reason is, yes, regression. But also, this is the natural state of affairs. If a team is very good and wins the World Series, management isn't necessarily going to go say, I'm going to go sign this superstar and that superstar. They might figure that they have a little bit of carte blanche to kind of relax uh, the following offseason. And so from that point of view, it's natural that there's going to be some regression. You know, you lose Pablo Sandoval and Mike Morris and you decide that Tim Hudson and Jake Peavy and these aging pitchers are good enough, you're probably going to be worse the next year. If you sign a bunch of guys and you trade for a bunch of guys and you make aggressive improvements, you're probably going to be better the year after. So I think that there are kind of self-fulfilling things that happen when it comes to it. Yeah, I feel bad for the Royals in the sense that, man, that 90 feet away from tying Game 7 of the World Series just seems so far away now, you know? To be that close after such a long... Uh, such a long stretch of disparity to think that you could fall back and be the 23rd team that's got to hurt you know that's it's got to be tough to swallow it'd be interesting to see how they how the the fans in the city how how they react to the team this year well I, you know the it's automatic when you do well one year you sell more tickets the year after it's always a year after and people are going to be more interested but i just don't think they're going to be very good this year i think that a lot of shields is going to hurt in many ways number one shields is good Number two, he eats a ton of innings, and when you eat innings, you take some pressure off the other starters and also off the bullpen. And the bullpen was a big strength last year. Well, if the bullpen's getting overworked, then maybe Herrera and Davis don't pitch like Dennis Eckers. Lee. So uh, I, I think that's a big thing. And, you know, when your attempts to plug holes in the lineup or to go get Kendris Morales and Alex Rios, that's not good. That's not, you know, a, a proper way to spend money. They spend real money this offseason. They just used it on lousy players. Uh, they got Edison Volquez, who had a nice year last year. I don't feel that good about him either. His periphery, you know, his strikeout weight, walk racing, he would look at beyond ERA, suggest that he's not a great pitcher, and he might have gotten a little lucky last year, and, and uh, I have my doubts about him. So, and they'll be well supported. Uh, I think that's uh, probably going to happen. There's more season ticket sales and so forth. But I think we get to July, and, and there might be a 500 team or maybe even a touch below. I, I just am not that optimistic about them this year. Yeah, I'm really. And I picked, by the way, I picked them to make the playoffs last year uh, for one's worth, and I picked the Giants to make the playoffs last year. I just think both of them probably won't make the playoffs this year. I'm excited to uh, to watch the Cubs and the Cardinals and the Pirates in that division. I'm really interested to see just how the Yankees. Not, I mean, it's not just that they don't have Derek Jeter, but I can't think of the last time the Yankees entered the season without a player that's really a like a defining Yankee. I mean, it's been they move so smoothly from Mattingly to Jeter that it's got to be before Mattingly that they went into a season without, I don't know, a guy like that. It's just sort of weird for someone who's grown up in this area with so many Yankee fans and been to Yankee Stadium so many times. But I don't know. Is there something like that that you're really excited for for the season? Uh, well, yeah. I, first of all, to your point about the you no know, defining Yankee, 
they just don't have an elite player on the roster. Right. The only guy that I would argue could be that is Tanaka, and there's so many health questions about him that it's hard to say. He's a wonderful pitcher to watch when he's healthy. But, yeah, I have them. I think they might finish last in the division. I really am not uh, high on the Yankees this year. Other teams I'm excited about, one of the big things is the, the arms race in the National League. You know, the Dodgers and the Cardinals and the Nationals have made the playoffs a few years in a row now and are kind of established as <laughs> division favorites almost every year and all that. But you look at that second tier of teams, uh, the Marlins. I mentioned the Marlins briefly before. Yep. They're the best outfield in baseball. <laughs> excuse me, the best outfield in baseball. And all those guys are 25 or younger. Stanton has this massive contract. They go get Latos. They go get Gordon. They go get Prado. They make these incremental moves to make themselves better. Uh, I like them a lot. In fact, um, hypothetically, uh, it's possible that I may or may not have put a 60 to 1 wager down on them winning the World Series. I, I really think that they're a. An excellent team and an undervalued team. I don't think people realize that they have a chance to be really good. That's good the value for sure. Big. Yeah, go ahead. No, I said it's good. That's great value for your number eight team to get sixty to one. I think so. Yeah. Uh, the Rays are also hundred to one. I almost did that, but that's almost being too close, too much Rays baggage, so I didn't bother with that. Although hundred to one, who knows? Um, the Cubs are obviously getting a lot of attention, but no, deservedly so. They went out and got Lester. I also really like the Miguel Montero move. Like the young guys, I think they have a chance to be better. And the Padres, my goodness, I mean, they were so aggressive. <laughs> really, in one 24-hour span, they just completely remade not only the roster, but how the franchise is perceived nationally. The Padres are now people are talking about the Padres. That hasn't happened in forever. Uh, they're interesting, too. So there's going to be some, you know, good teams in the National League that don't make the playoffs. If, if we figure that the Dodgers, Nationals, and Cardinals all might make it, which is no guarantee, but let's say that that's possible. Cubs, Padres, Marlins, these are all good teams on paper. Pirates have made the playoffs the last two years, so maybe they don't. The defending World Series champions play in the National League. That's tough, man. I actually look at the American League. I've kind of believed that the American League might be the better league. I don't know about last year, but in the, let's say in the recent past, I believe that the American League top to bottom is better. Not so sure anymore. The National League is really a lot of young talent coming up. You get guys like Lester and Scherzer switching leagues now. These things start to tip a little bit. And now it's to the point where, uh, yeah, you know, look at the National League, and I say this is going to be a brutal, brutal race, especially for those wild card spots. I, I, it's very tough to pick uh, those number four, number five teams in the National League right now. Well, Jonah Carey is on Twitter. Uh, he's at Jonah Carey there. He writes for Grantland.com. He's got a great uh, version of his The 30 offseason version with all 30 teams. Uh, usually The 30 you only write about a team or four or so. Uh, this time all 30. Also today you post, I think it was today, Posted a yep. over-under column if you're into some wagering about baseball. And, of course, the paperback, Up, Up, and Away, The Kid, The Hawk, Rock, Vladdy, Pedro, LeGrand, Orange, UP, The Crazy Business of Baseball, and the ill-fated but unforgettable Montreal Expos is in paperback uh, now. And uh, we'll just get you out on this. You mentioned uh, the ESPN Baseball Summit. What about the Grantland Baseball Summit? What are you hoping to do on Grantland as far as covering baseball as a whole this year? Uh, I want people to be entertained and maybe learn things occasionally. That's getting harder and harder to do because the <laughs> I feel like that if I was coming into the industry right now, I'd have no chance to have a job. There are so many good young people right now writing about baseball uh, very creatively and, and very well that it's tough. And so what I'm – heck, my relatively new colleague, Ben Lindbergh, who's significantly younger than me, is so much better than I am. He's just wow. a phenomenal writer. Uh, and just thinks about things in such an interesting way. And so that becomes a challenge. You know, you, you, you want to do meat and potato stuff, stuff like rankings columns are good, and you can obviously find good ways to express your opinions there. But I want to try to really make people think and come up with different ideas and so forth. So uh, 
that's my obsession, really. I just wake up every day and I say, you know, what about this? What about that? And uh, I have various notepads around my house where I scribble things down, or I'll email myself on my phone to remind me of something. And uh, you know, if I can come up with even three of those in the course of the season, like really smack people in the face, kind of articles. Oh wow, that's ooh, that you got to read that. Uh, you know, in addition to kind of doing steady quality work on a week to week basis, that would make me very happy. That's that's what I'm trying to do, and, and I feel like as a writer. If you strive to do that, it, it almost becomes self-fulfilling thing. If you just say, no, nah, I'm good, you're just not going to be as good. If you are aggressive and, and, and trying hard, uh, then hopefully good things will happen. Well, Jana, thank, or, excuse me, Jonah, thank you so much for all the time today and for being such a great friend uh, to the podcast to make a seventh appearance, and we appreciate all of them for sure. Thanks for having me. All right, talk to you soon. All right, I want to thank our guests, Greg Wyshynski from The Puck Daddy and Jonah Carey from Grantland as we return to a more traditional Sportscasters episode today. You can find today's podcast and all of our podcasts, including last week's with Anthony Kumia and Gabe Polsky, on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can find Don at Don Like Sports. You can also email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. We always love the feedback. And uh, plug-wise, I think that's it. One last thing. I'll get it started today because I just wanted to say something quickly. Uh, March 4th, which is the day we'll be releasing this podcast, is the two-year anniversary of my colon surgery uh, that shut down this podcast for quite a while in the year 2013. And... It's hard to not look back on a day like that, and it's hard to not remember where you were and how you felt and how hard it was to get to where I am today, which admittedly is not nearly as far along as I probably would have hoped to be uh, when I woke up from that surgery uh, two years ago. But in the end, I'm very grateful uh, to, uh, to be living the life that I am, to have been able to do things like get married, to... Uh, keep working on a podcast that was named one of the best by Sports Illustrated in 2014. Uh, to be able to uh, watch my brother's hockey career, go to his Yale graduation in a few months, uh, see the birth of my nephew in a few months. All those things are great. And uh, even though I would like my health to be better than it is, I'm certainly not one to ever complain about it. So I'm very grateful for all of that. And I bring it up only to say... Uh, if you are out there listening and you have Crohn's or uh, something like that and want to chat with me about it, I'm always open to that. I'm not one who's embarrassed or shy uh, to talk about these things. And I certainly have been uh, helped by people in the public eye who have uh, talked about what can be a very embarrassing disease for some people. Uh, obviously, things that involve making you shit more. Or just out of the blue at times, that can be embarrassing for some people. Uh, luckily, I'm not embarrassed about it. There's just uh, nothing I can do about it. And uh, if I have to shit at your house or in your restaurant, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm not embarrassed. Uh, some people are, and it makes it a lot harder to live with this. Uh, so if I can help, please reach out at sports underscore casters uh, or email sportscasters at gmail. I promise to be. 
uh, a shoulder to cry on for anyone uh, going through Crohn's or any kind of uh, illness. All right, one last thing for me this week. Uh, I just want to say good on Kurt Schilling. I don't have a baseball team, so I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm not a Yankees guy or a Red Sox guy. But uh, the Internet gives a lot of things, and one of the things it gives is anonymity and like false bravado. And some people use that to a crazy negative extent for some reason. They just don't know how to handle that anonymous nature of Twitter or of the Internet, but Twitter in general. Uh, Kurt Schilling, if you didn't hear, he just essentially wanted to post something nice about his daughter, an accomplishment. Yeah, as proud she had made a college baseball team or right. something like that. He just wanted to post that and everything – I shouldn't say everything. I'm sure he got – I'm sure overwhelming majority was positive. But uh, more than a handful of people posted things mainly about her looks and not posi- not not just, oh, what a beautiful girl, good for her. It was essentially about how uh, bring your daughter over here and I'll rape her type posts. And what I want to say is he got some of those guys called out. Uh, he got people to find their identities. And the one guy actually was like a radio host for his college and now has lost that position. And we've talked in the past about how we don't want people to lose livelihoods over mistakes. But there's a difference between mistakes and like pointed and repeated uh, attempts at purposely just being very vulgar, vulgar, yeah. uh, bullying, uh, whatever you want to call it. Kurt I think Schilling, one of the tweets was literally, I'm going to, or her underwear is going to be bloody like your sock was after I puncture her hymen. Right. Like really vulgar and nasty things like that. So Kurt to say Schilling, to someone's father about their daughter, it's unbelievable. It's disgusting. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't care how big a Yankees fan you are or whatever team you're a fan. And of. I don't think it's the thing that we defend. No, that is not. Yeah. A mistake is the girl on the the TV show saying jigaboo because she doesn't know what it means. Good example. She has no idea what it means. That That's an honest mistake. You or the guys in Atlanta sorry. who went just a little tasteless with the jokes on Gleason. Right. But remember when Let's it was happening. Cleaning. Oh, here. we got random videos playing. Uh, remember when it was happening and the one guy was like, maybe we shouldn't do this. Right. Remember he's kind of like wanted to cut the cord. On it, why not sort of bail? That's the kind of thing that we'd hate to see someone uh, be shunned for. Uh, th- these guys, they're they're assholes that deserve what they get. Yeah, these, these are internet tough guys. And as a father of a daughter, uh, I would love if I had the wherewithal and the means to do the same thing if that ever happened to my daughter. And I have a son, too. And if he ever talked about a girl like that, he would. it just wouldn't make it that far. He would hear it from me. Uh, these are grown men doing this stuff. These are not innocent little kids that made a mistake. This isn't even Jameis Winston being stupid and standing One is a team. college kid, right? Right. Well, right, he well, is. And you can debate how grown of a man you are in college. Sure. But again, and I'm not making any excuses. No, for him, I understand but, that. Yeah. And again, mistakes happen, but these are repeated. Like these guys that he called out and had called out by fans or whoever, uh, other people on the internet, like found these guys' identities essentially. These guys went on and on about this stuff. It wasn't one tweet. It was over and over again. They engaged uh, Schilling. And Schilling wrote a great blog about it. He did, you can yeah. seek it out. Uh, he linked stories after stories of girls getting harassed and then killing themselves. So uh, I 
I'm not a baseball fan. We've talked about this. I remember it's not about baseball. No, and I and I watched the World Series within it, so I'm not a Schilling fan necessarily. Uh, as a nerd, I remember his endeavors into video gaming and stuff like that. That didn't work out. That right? didn't work out at all. Yeah. But man, this is possibly one of the best things he's ever done. So good for Kurt Schilling, and uh, don't use your anonymity a little wiser don't than be a this, dick. people. Thank you.